Our message this morning is uh, taken from Mark chapter 5. Uh, after Easter, we have a little uh, departure from our, our plan of working through the uh, gospel as Mark records it. We're right back in it, Mark chapter 5, a lengthy passage this morning, but an incredible picture of God's word, uh, a, a biblical sandwich as it was uh, uh, that we see together. I was thinking the other day, I don't often assert my credentials as a geek, as a nerd, as, yeah, but, but let me tell you, I, I, I have them. I have a, my undergraduate degree was, was in uh, computer science and, and moved to, uh, to Huntsville to work in the, in the geek-laden community of government contracting and technical work up there in Huntsville, Alabama, working for a company uh, called Intergraph Corporation. I, I literally, I don't do it anymore because Carol won't let me, but you know my pockets were stretched out with the pocket protectors and all the cards and things and notes in my pocket uh, to keep up with everything that was going on, and I worked on those, those ancient computers back in the, uh, in the 80s. Um, big as, as, as the room and about as powerful as what you have in your pocket right now. Uh, but, oh, I was geeky through and through. And we'd have these daily meetings to talk about this big project that we were on. This, this project that we were on was a multi-corporation uh, government contract, and we each had components, and we would meet uh, for these, these just eternal meetings in the afternoon as we sorted through a computer company sorting through paper going through all the papers we reviewed, the problems and the discrepancies we had. But one acronym that I rejoiced to see always is when I had a stack of problems that I was having to work on, whenever the guy leading the meeting would look and say, we'll just call that OBE. OBE. Anybody know what OBE stands for? All right, some other folks have dealt with the government before. Yes, overcome by events. I love that. That meant that the problem that I was dealing with no longer was a problem because something had changed, something was different. I no longer had to deal with that problem anymore. I wrote OBE and filed it in the round file. I love that. Overcome by events. And we think about the the difficulties and issues that we encounter in the world, and so often the things that we worry about often become overcome by events. Things change, priorities change, perspective changes. But here's something I want to impress upon you in the passage that's at hand today, is that God's plan, God's love, God's approach to dealing with us is never overcome by events. God's dealing with us is never overcome by the unexpected, for there is nothing unexpected before God. That's a good spot for an amen. Amen. Thank you. Very good. Our passage this morning comes right on the heels of, of that storm at sea, right? The disciples, they're out on the boat. As they're on the boat, the, uh, a storm swells up. Uh, Pastor uh, Lampkin, as he was here, uh, taught on this particular passage. Uh, the disciples shook him in the back of the boat and said, Jesus, don't you care if we die? A question that we so often ask Jesus, do, do you care? Don't you? Don't you care? We see them working across the sea. As they come across the sea, they come upon that man that's possessed by the legion. The legion of devils and demons uh, there, that Gadarene demoniac. Jesus casts those, those demons into the swine. The swine uh, fly into the sea. The people all then uh, cry out, Jesus, leave our region. And then we pick up on the story now as they cross back over the sea. It says that Jesus once again had crossed uh, the boat to the other side. What Mark does, though, is he he tells the story in an incredible way. He he places one incident within the midst of another. 
One, one answer that there might be an event that would overcome our plans, would overcome our desires and our schemes, but it does not overcome God's plan. What Mark has done is he's placed one incident in the middle of another incident and made kind of like a Mark sandwich here. He, he tells two stories, and, and one commentator says this. He says, the flavor of the outer story adds zest to the inner story, and the taste of the inner story is meant in turn to permeate the outer one. These stories teach us about the other, teach us about God dealing with the two women and the man of the story. The two women, one who is 12 years old and the other who has endured 12 years of harsh ostracism, who has been cast out 12 years of tears and loneliness. This is God's Word. Let's read it together. I invite you to follow along. Keep your, your pew Bible open to page 840 uh, or your copy of God's Word as you've brought it. And let's study God's Word together. This, this is the voice of God speaking to us today. Beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again to the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. And he employed him, implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged all about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather she grew worse. And she heard the reports about Jesus, and she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler and of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum. This means, little girl, I say to you, arise, wake up. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them 
to give her something to eat. Thank you, Lord, for this, your word. I pray uh, that it would not only be that which occupies us for the next few moments, but Lord, that it would, it would consume our attention, that we would be captivated by it as we see the love of Jesus Christ, Jairus, and to his daughter, to her mother, and to this woman, this woman forgotten and despised. And that this is a reminder of your love for us. Father, as, as we seek to lay hold of Jesus, and we praise you that in faith that he is found. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine what's going on here. Jesus, as he's come back across, this, this very important person in the region of Capernaum, Jairus, he, he would have been known as, to get this right, the Rosh Hakaneseth. That, that is the leader of the synagogue. He was in charge of, of, of all, the, all the teaching that would have gone in. And remember, the synagogue was the local area very similar to, to what we would be doing here, a proclamation of the word. It was not the temple. It was not where sacrifices were held, the temple in Jerusalem. But in the region of Capernaum, it would have been a local assembly for people to come and to preach, to teach, to hear, to understand, to learn the word of God. And he is bold to approach Jesus. Think about this man, very important uh, person in the region, uh, would have had quite the reputation, uh, would have been in affiliation with Jewish leadership. And here you have this man who has already begun to get the attention and even uh, attract some anger uh, from the Jewish leadership. But this man in great desperation comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet. He says, my little daughter, my little daughter is, is at death's door. He pleads with Jesus. Jesus, would you come? If you come and lay hands on her, I know she'll get well. An amazing testimony, a statement of faith. Not a perfect faith, not a full faith, not an all-encompassing faith, but a faith in believing that Jesus is able to do what he has heard that Jesus is able to do. And he says, if you lay hands on my daughter, I know that she will be well. And Jesus responds immediately. He goes. Now, an easy thing to to draw in conclusion from this right off the bat is when an important person comes to Jesus, then Jesus responds. It'd be very easy for us to to take this and say, well, obviously this man was important enough to get Jesus' attention immediately. If that's the lesson you get, then you walk away with absolutely the the wrong idea. That we don't impress Jesus with our credentials. We don't, we don't ply Jesus into acting because we present our resume before him and say, Lord, if you're going to respond on behalf of, of anybody, it's going to be on behalf of, of my credentials, my resume, and the reputation that I have in my community. Matter of fact, mostly those things can be impediments to us approaching Jesus rightly. We, we do see, though, that the gyrus comes. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus, a most undignified and ungainly stance. He he falls down at Jesus, weeping, pleading, saying, Jesus, please help my daughter. Who who would not be moved with such sympathy? That if you have the power to to save this this little 12-year-old girl, Jesus, he does respond. He responds in compassion. He is moved uh, by the, the impassioned plea. And he moves with all haste to the teacher's house. But as he's going, the crowds are thronging around him. Remember what's had to happen to this point. That Jesus, as he was teaching, at one point had to be set out on a boat, right? So that there would be a separation between him and the people. Uh, that they would not crowd around him and, and, and squash him. 
and, 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 and keep others from hearing him because the sound would not be able to get out from the din of people all around him. The crowds are, are crushing in around him. And, and as he's going through, imagine Jairus trying to pull him through the crowd and looking back, he's impatient. I, th- I think about the first time that, that we took Thomas, and I can tell stories about Thomas all day long. He's not here. But sometimes he does listen to the podcast and... And, and if I, we, we have an agreement, by the way, if I, if I tell a story about him without getting his permission, I have to pay him royalty on it. The good news behind that is I've told him that that royalty comes in the form of school tuition and a place to sleep. So we, we've worked that out well. I think about the very first time that we took Thomas to Disney World and the excitement and the joy of, of this, this little boy grabbing on to whatever he can grab, daddy's britches, mama's hand or pocketbook, and pulling us through because he's got some place to be. Now imagine if that was not a, 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 a rapid haste of joy and excitement like going into Disney World, but this idea that, that I am bringing a rescuer to save my little girl. And Jairus is pulling Jesus along, and he's working to the crowds, and he's hollering, make way, make way. And the people keep crowding in. It's, it's, it's confusion. It's chaos. It's madness. And imagine that anxiety of, of Jairus. It's just like any time that we have some place to be. It's some place to be important. And every traffic light seems to be against us. And, and, and every driver seems to be intent on driving 20 miles an hour under the speed limit next to somebody else 20 miles an hour under the speed limit. And you can't pass and you can't get there. And you're desperate. But again... Forget that you're late for a meeting. You're running for the life of your daughter. And Jairus turns and doesn't see Jesus. Consumed in the crowd, he, he looks back and he, where is he? And, and then he catches, he, where is Jesus? Where is he? And he sees him. He's, he's talking to, to, this, to this woman. He's talking to this woman. Jesus, leave her. She, she looks so much better than my daughter. My daughter's on a deathbed. Come on, Jesus, let's go. The panic, the anxiety, the anger, the impatience, all these things rise to the surface. And I can only imagine this desperate father saying, why, Jesus, come on. And then the soul-crushing news comes to him. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's nothing that can be done. Imagine the father, Jairus, saying, why, why couldn't you stay with me? Why, why couldn't you follow me? Why, why, why couldn't you... Jesus, if only you had cared about my daughter, she wouldn't have died. If only you had cared. Do you, do you hear this, this theme that, that is, is coming back to the surface? Coming back to the surface, questioning whether or not the Savior... That's not right here in the text. It's not, it's not, it's not the, the actual words of Him, but it's undeniable that that would have been upon His heart as, as He looked, as He in absolute resignation looked and said, if only... He had hurried. We saw that in the boat. Don't you care, Jesus, if we die? We heard that at the grave of Lazarus. Oh, Jesus, if you had only hurried, Lazarus would still be alive. And yet what is also consistent is in the boat we learn Jesus does care. Amen? In the boat we we learned when Jesus said, oh, you have little faith, and He told the sea to cease its raging that these disciples, these brave fishermen would be confident in the power of the one who was in the boat with them. And there, even as he wept, and as he comforted the sisters of Lazarus at the grave, 
He said, Lazarus, come forth. And the grave had to give up the rotting corpse of Lazarus to walk and to live and to rejoice in his new life. Jesus looks at him. Jesus looks at him. He says, don't. Don't be afraid, only believe. The word there is where we get phobia from, the Greek word phobos, uh, phobu. It's a fear. It's a, it's basically a saying there, fear no longer. Fly away no longer. Cease your flight. Cease this terror. Do not let this terrorize you. And we have to ask when Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe, what is, what is Jairus afraid of? We have to ask, what is this fear that Jesus is rebuking that belief would take its place? Well, there's so many fears that would come up in a moment like that. The, the fear that, that this man was going to have to go on the rest of his life without his daughter. The, the fear of, of the fact that his, his faith just didn't work. It failed him, that it's in vain. Fear that trusting in Jesus just doesn't work. Fear that the things that we have been promised will let us down. Jesus says, cease your fear. Only believe. This disbelief, brothers and sisters this morning, this, this belief, this trust is an essential component of our understanding of God's sovereignty. Now, God is sovereign whether or not we believe, but in our relationship with Him, we are called upon to believe in the reality of God's sovereignty in all things, even the things we don't like, the things about which we're scared, the things that traumatize and deal with us in harsh ways in this world. It is necessary for us to believe as we embrace God's total sovereignty. The worst that the world has to give has been conquered by Jesus. Again, an excellent place for amen. Thank you. I know you're Presbyterians, but this is not going to make you break out in hives. I promise. The idea that we rejoice, amen, means what? Not, well, the pastor's done. That's what we like it to mean sometimes, don't we? Amen? No, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> amen literally means it is true. Jesus began so much of what he said by saying, amen, amen, verily, verily. Doesn't mean it's over. It means it's true. And at one point, it will mean it's over. But right now, it just continues to mean it's true that God has conquered the worst that this world has to give. His plan, His timing, His method, they are all perfect, though they're so very often vastly different from ours. Our plans are many, but God's plan is perfect. Jeremiah 29.11, we're familiar with this. We quote it so very often. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give you hope and a future. We know the plans. We don't know the plans, but God knows the plans that he has for us. And those plans are better, better, far better than anything we could come up with. As one pastor said, God loves us so much that he thwarts our plans and establishes his. Because the plans that we put in place pale in comparison to the good that God desires for us. And like Jairus, though, we come, we come to Christ, not for His help, but we come to Christ because we want, him to, we want Him to fix our problems the way that we want them fixed. We want Jesus to, to bless and to adopt and to enact our plans. But if He were to do so, it would be a pitiful expression of His love for us. You see, God's plans are perfect to give us hope in the future, and if He just simply answers our requests according to our plans, He's giving us 
so much of a lesser deal. He's giving us a pitiful, a pitiful accommodation of, of what we want as opposed to his good and perfect idea and his love for us. And so we do. We lift up our request to God as Jairus did. Come and lay hands on my daughter that she should not die. We commit our plans to God, but we must embrace that we bring so much muddle to the mix. We lift our plans up before God, but we have to say, as Jesus did in the garden, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that's not just a resignation of saying, okay, God, it's not me, it's you, you're in charge, whatever. It's a wonderful testimony to the fact that in his sovereignty, he has the best. And it is so difficult to see when somebody has just told you, your daughter, well, what happened? Why was Jesus not there? It was because in the midst of this, Mark tells this other bit of the story. The narrative within the narrative. The story within the story about this weak faith that lays hold of our strong Savior. This, this weak woman who grabs just the hem of Jesus' garment. Now, this woman, in Jairus' view, was an intrusion into the, that moment. She was an interruption. Well, she's desperate, but not as desperate as my little girl. For 12 years, she's had a problem, by the way. 12 years now, it says she, she dealt with an issue of blood. And we know this is, this is a female thing is being described here. But when it, it talking about this, it, there's, there's so much more that went into what her life was like for those 12 years. According to Levitical law, that she could have no part of fellowship or social life. She certainly, because of the physical limitations of what was going on, she couldn't have any children. She, in all likelihood, would have been put away by her husband as being unfit to be his wife. She would not have been allowed to come into the synagogue, into the temple. She would not have been allowed to come into the presence of other people. Like a leper, she would have been ostracized and outcast. Only you couldn't look at her and say, I see the skin, I see the sores, I see the missing digits and limbs. She must be a leper. That was not it. It was something that she would have kept covered but she had to stay away from all people, lonely, untouched, unloved for 12 years. But she does the unthinkable, doesn't she? She comes right there, this anonymous outcast, she comes and she lays hold of Jesus. She touches Jesus. She believes and she touches Jesus. Every indication is that she would have had the weakest of faiths. She, she probably would have been steeped in great superstition and just reaching up and saying, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just, just rub him like some sort of divine medical rabbit's foot, then I'll be healed. But she boldly grabs hold of Jesus. She doesn't have a mighty faith, but she has a real faith. She knows that this is the source of healing. Now, probably the most remarkable part of this just from wishing I had been there. The healings, and, and I, I think about that so often, the idea of, you know, I told you early on I have the geeky credentials, and I have geeky credentials even that I love reading science fiction books. And science fiction books, the common theme that you find in so many of them is time travel. And that idea that you could get into a time machine and go forward in time or go back in time. And that idea, every now and then I would sit there and think, what an amazing thing it would have been to be able to go back a couple of thousand years and to step off and to look at that's where geekiness and faith come together. And to be there and to hear Jesus as he's crushed in the crowd and for him to say, who touched me? And I heard some laughter as I read it because it is quite 
it, it's, it's comical. The, the disciples would say, Jesus, you see everybody around you crushing in on you, and yet you say, who touched me? Come on. But we do know that Jesus knew. Our, our Savior knew what was going on. But our Savior also was one who would ask questions. Just as God in the garden said, Adam, Eve, where are you? He knew where they are. And he said, did you eat that which I told you not to eat? He knew what they had done. Our God asks questions to elicit a response from us. And he turns and he says, who did this? Now, Jesus asked who touched him. The disciples are amused. Everyone touched you, Jesus. Now, look, I want you to see you look with me in the passage. What takes place there? The woman... As she touched the hem of the garment, it says that she knew, she felt it. She was better. She was healed, right? Case closed. Go on. Keep moving. Right? We've taken care of business. This one's settled. We're going on to the next case. The doctor just goes right down from bed to bed, right? No, that's not what takes place. Look at what happens in the text. It says that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And then Jesus said to her, daughter, verse 34, your faith has made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus preaches to her. Jesus listens to her testimony. Jesus proclaims the truth. We deal with the whole truth here while Jairus is saying, Jesus, we don't have time for this. Why does Jesus pause right there? First off, the timing of God is perfect because God is the God of all time. God is the God who is in control and nothing surprises. There are no sneak attacks upon God and there's nothing that can slip up upon Him unaware. And that Jesus in that moment is absolutely in control. Our Savior, as He walked among us, was also the one who was keeping and sustaining the entire universe as the eternal Son of God. And right there, He pauses because this woman needed to know how she was made well. For if this woman had just been allowed to rub his garment and go on, then she probably would have continued on in some sort of superstitious understanding that she was just able to rub Jesus' clothes and she was made better. And so let's cut up his garment and all of us keep our little lucky piece of Jesus' cloak in our pocket so that we can stay well and healthy and wealthy and wise. Amen? No. No. Jesus pauses and he looks at her. He says, there's something that is more important than your healing. We've dealt with this again and again and again, right? The boy that was lowered through the roof, he needed to understand forgiveness more than he needed to walk again. And this woman needed to understand this faith. Needed to understand and to know the love of a Savior. And so he looks at her, and what does he say to her? Look at the text. He looks at her. He doesn't say, woman. He doesn't say, ma'am. He looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. And he proclaims that she could go in a true and a lasting and an eternal peace and that she is indeed healed. It wasn't the garment that saved her. It wasn't the hymn that made her well. It was the hymn within the garment. And she needed to know that. So we get back to Jairus, don't we? That inner story of that, that one who, who was forsaken by, by all because of this disease for 12 years. We get back to Jairus standing there impatient and how distracted and how desperate he was, and now he stands there in utter despair, and Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe, and they make their way with that inner circle, right? Remember Jesus now, he's got his 12 disciples, he's got uh, the many who follow him, the multitudes that throng around him, but he pulls three, Peter, James, and John, those three 
that are on the Mount of the Transfiguration, those three that are in the garden with him, these three that are so very close to our Savior, he pulls them along, and they show up at the house of Jairus, and there is chaos. There is pandemonium. Everything that's going on there, there are even professionals that would have been brought in to mourn, to bring appropriate mourning at the loss of one far too soon. A 12-year-old who should not have died, who has died. The word there is thorubos, which means a tumult. And it harkens us back to just a few verses before uh, where we saw the sea thrashing about. And everyone that was captured in the midst of that chaos was beside themselves. And here in the house of Jairus, the same thing was going on. It also brings an indication uh, like a mob scene. So much is going on, like Paul and Silas and Thessalonica as the mob was coming to descend upon them and they had to sneak out of the window. We, we see this type of environment there at the house and into this chaos, Jesus speaks calm. Jesus turns away the storm. They laugh at him because he testifies that the woman, the, the little girl, she simply needs to wake up. And so he puts them out. Mock. You'll have no part of this. And he brings the family in, and Peter and James and John, and he grabs the little girl's hand, and he speaks gently to her. Talitha Kumi. Wake up, little girl. Moms, you've done that, haven't you? Dads? I've, I've, I've stormed into Thomas's room, insistent that he get up and didn't speak so gently, but there have been many times when I'd walk in there and pat him on the back and say, Son, Time to get up. There's gentleness to the words, loving, compassion of our Savior. And the little girl, she opens her eyes, and the 12-year-old arises, and everyone's amazed because this Jesus, this Jesus is not stopped by death. This Jesus is not one who has to handle things according to our plan. You see, Jairus had instructed Jesus, you must get there before she dies, and she and she dies. And he arrives, and it is for our Savior is perfect in his plan, in his time, and in his love. These two events, these two events come together. One, one is chronic. One, one is this 12-year-old. In, in the midst of that, uh, no, sorry, the, the, the chronic case, that the 12 years of this woman, one could lose hope. And 12 years of worth of, of, of bleeding, of ostracism, of being cast away, of being unloved, of being untouched, of having no family, of having new fr- no friends. A chronic case, this, this woman was pitiful and pathetic and our Savior's love and His sovereignty come into bear. And then in the midst of this other one, a very acute case, right there at that moment, all hell seems to break loose in Jairus' life. And yet it is heaven that prevails when our Savior says, little girl, wake up. Here's what I want you to take from this as, as we take this story and, and seek to not only deal with it for a few minutes here, but, but seek to live it out in our life. First off is that we do come to our Savior with all of our needs, that which has got us panicked at the moment, that which is longstanding, that which has been with us for, for years. We, we bring all these things before the throne and we continue to bring them before the throne and we do so boldly. We do so boldly. Jairus came boldly unafraid of the consequences around him of of his uh, leadership from the temple in Jerusalem that would have condemned what he did in giving affirmation uh, to this this bootleg Messiah, this this off-brand teacher who who is causing so much trouble. He came boldly and said, Jesus, I know if you lay hands on her, she'll be well. And the woman who came boldly, she said, I'm allowed to touch no one, but I must touch Jesus. 
I must touch Jesus. and I, We can come boldly. But here's one last thing I want you to see. I want you to see a, a very common thing between these two elements. When Jairus comes and when the woman comes, there is a similarity of posture as they come. And this need not be overlooked, must not be overlooked. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on this. He, he writes this. He says, the people who came to examine and to test Jesus, talking about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, those who came to examine and test Jesus, always went away disappointed and confused feeling that they themselves had been tested and examined to the very depth of their being. Those who came to trap him and to entice him in his words, they invariably went away confounded and condemned, and they hated him with a bitter hatred. But, oh, what a great word. But those who fell at his feet, who acknowledged him and his greatness, never failed to obtain a blessing. Let there be no mistake about this. If you approach him in the mere spirit of curiosity, he will not reveal himself to you. But if you come, if you come with your own ideas and conceptions in order to judge and to estimate and to try him, he will confound you. But if you approach him, if you approach him humbly, if you come to him on your knees, and if you look at him, if you're conscious of your own sinfulness, of your own helplessness, and that you realize that this is the very Son of God come on earth to deliver us. He will embrace love and heal. These two come and they fall down before Jesus. And Jesus heals now. We don't always find that healing on this side of eternity. But we always find eternity. We always find Jesus. Let that be what you take, that our Savior will never be overcome by the events that we encounter in our lives. Acute or chronic, we might come and know the love of a Savior who embraces, who heals, who raises us eternally. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that this would be, Father, a truth that we take with us. Father, that we would rejoice in knowing in knowing the care of a Savior as the crowd throngs about that He might pause and to know the woman of faith there in His presence who needed not only His healing, but needed His love to know the love of a Savior as she has lived for 12 years without knowing compassion and love of any sort. And the compassion of a Savior for a father, for a mother and a little girl. This is our Savior, the Savior that we proclaim to the nations around us. May we know that there is no less love of our Savior for us. These families, these individuals who saw Jesus. We praise you in the name of our Savior. Amen.